Welcome to Deep Breath In, the podcast from the BMJ, supported by Medical Protection, where we tackle the everyday challenges of being a GP. Contraception appointments have always been one of my favourites, straightforward and rewarding. In this podcast, we're going to be looking at tailored regimens for the pill with Anne McGregor and talking to family medicine doctor and educationalist Tara Stein, both of whom really go into what being patient-centred in those consultations means and why it can actually be really complicated. I'm Tom Nolan, GP in London and clinical editor for the BMJ. And joining me again today are the Deep Breath In regulars, Jenny and Navjoy. Hi, Jenny. Hi, Tom. I'm Jenny Rasanathan, a family medicine doctor and clinical editor for the BMJ. And hi, Navjoy. Hi, Tom. I'm Navjoy Lada. I'm the head of education at the BMJ and a GP in London. So let's talk about the, the pill check. Um, and I was thinking about this episode, I, I just thought it's hard not to start with a bit of nostalgia for me because, you know, when I started as a GP, the 10-minute the face-to-face pill check was, um, yeah, one of my favourite consultations. I think partly because it's just short, but it's quite discreet. Um, and, but, there, you know, but it can be quite stretching as well. So um, I wanted to start there. I mean, do, do you like the pill check, uh, Jenny? Is, is this a consultation you enjoy as well? Yeah, I do. I, I um, have similar feelings. Every time I see in the notes before a visit that someone is there to talk about contraception, I'm like, mm. yes, I got this. And invariably, <laughs> I don't, right? Like, invariably, it's something super complicated. But but sometimes it, I get lucky. And, um, yeah. and I do uh, have some knowledge that I can share, some ability to talk the patient through <clears throat> their question. Mm. Yeah, and I, I think that's the change in that those consultations are getting so few, so much fewer and further between, particularly as we're not seeing anyone face-to-face still. Um, Navjoy, what do you reckon? Yeah, I mean, I completely agree. I think when I, definitely when I first started out, the pill check seemed like a kind of welcome reprieve mm. some, from some of the more complex consultations. But as time's gone on, I'm finding more and more that, um, that either... You know, actually, if you probe more deeply um, within a consultation, you kind of can find out all sorts of things. So, you know, if you ask, oh, by the way, do you have a history of migraines just when you're doing a repeat prescription for microgynon or whatever it is? And they're like, oh, actually, yes, I do. <laughs> or or that, you know, you start, um, you know, maybe uh, the patient who's come in has lots of questions about alternatives or or whatever it is. I've, I'm finding that, that there is more and more to them mm. these days. Mm. As more and more um, contraceptive formulations have become available, that has also been an interesting kind of twist to the pill check. So um, in training, it was, you know, the patch, the ring, the pill, the IUD, the Nexplanon. Um, and I'm sure that those options will continue to broaden. Um, in Cambodia, it's very difficult to get some of the contraceptive forms. So I can't get mm. the NuvaRing, I can't get the patch, I can't get an Explanon. Um, so it, I think it's it's also really interesting how um, contraception availability can vary by geography. Mm. Mm. Okay, so an element of patient choice, which is just what's available. Yeah. Um, so we wanted to start our first with our first interview with, um, I suppose, a bit of a 
maybe hard so clinical yeah you know, here's some clinical knowledge you know maybe something more specific you can write in your your appraisal uh, and so we took a look at the FSRH uh, guidance and which was updated last year um Jenny as a as a US trained doctor working in Cambodia is this do you, do you do you follow FSRH guidance or do you have your own version we have our own guidelines that we follow, usually by the ACOG, the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists. And there are also other guidelines put out by the American Academy of Family Physicians, as well as the American Academy of Pediatricians. Right. Okay. Because we love the FSRH guidelines, don't we? Enough joke. This is, we met UKMEC 2, UKMEC 3, you know, it's all very clear yeah. and, and quite easy to follow. Very clear. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So one thing that particularly caught people's eye in, in the latest guidance was uh, tailored contraceptive regimes and, and this being something we can offer or we should be discussing with, with women. Um, uh, again, before we go into the interview, uh, I, I must confess, I've, I think because of the, the way that we, in our practice, a lot of this is now done uh, online, remotely, um, it's probably not something we bring up as often as we ought to. Is that, uh, are you the same or am I just practicing no, very poorly? <laughs> I bring it up all the time. Oh, do you? <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. I think, yeah, I mean, I think um, I think it's been one of those things that's become more and more kind of prominent in recent years, and I'm glad to see it reflected in the, yeah. the guidance now. Jenny? I also think that some women with more complicated uh, conditions like endometriosis and other dysmenorrhea, other abnormal uterine bleeding, really benefit from tailored regimens mm. and having fewer... Um, pill-free days, shorter intervals, mm. um, everything like that. So that has become an, a pretty prominent part of my counselling as well. Yeah, okay. So, uh, well, I spoke to Anne McGregor, and she's a, a professor of women's health. Um, she co-authored the, the BASH guidelines on headache as well, so she's also an expert in, in, in headache and migraines. Um, as first, I asked her to, to tell us about these tailored regimes. What are they? And then uh, a little bit more about the evidence base for them. My name is Professor Anne McGregor and I work in sexual and reproductive health care at Bart's Health NHS Trust. So we now um, recommend a variety of different regimes that women can use. So there is uh, what I'm sure GPs and healthcare professionals will be relatively familiar with already, which is tricycling, which is when a woman takes either three or four consecutive packs of a 21-day pill without a break in between them, but then takes, um, we would now recommend a four instead of a seven-day break at the end of those pill packs. So that's tricycling. Um, the other one can just be continuous. So you get a woman to start the pill and she just takes the pill continuously, irrespective of whether or not she gets any unscheduled bleeding. She just continues on. And in most cases, that bleeding will, will settle uh, within about two weeks. But there is the other option called flexible extended, which is break with the bleed. So that provided she's taken a minimum of 21 day of pills, if she then gets some unscheduled bleeding that is troublesome or lasting more than four days, she has the option to take a four-day break, 
which allows a bleed to continue. She then restarts the pill pack. Bleeding usually settles by that time and she continues on pill taking until she's either taken a minimum of 21 pills or she experiences um, four days of or more of troublesome bleeding and can then take another four day break. So, so lots more options there than, than traditionally, <laughs> you know, we, yes. I was taught, you know, not that long ago. Um, maybe we, we could look into the, some of the, the research in, into this then and, and the yeah. evidence of um, contraceptive failure rates. What, 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 how do they compare with, with the traditional um, offer? Yeah, so unfortunately we have no direct comparison um, or no real um, proper clinical trial data, head-to-head comparison. But you only need to consider that in the typical use of using combined hormonal contraception and the standard way, um, we expect about a 9% failure of, of um, percentage of unintended pregnancies within the first year of combined use. But if we have perfect use, so um, pe- women are using the 21 day seven regimen absolutely perfectly without any extensions, then that drops down to 0.3% um, risk of an un- unintended pregnancy. So if you just imagine the scenario, you know, um, a woman is going away um, for a weekend and she forgets to take her pill packet and she is due to restart her pill while she's away. And so she doesn't restart her pill. She's gone away with her partner. They have sex, risk of an unintended pregnancy. Whereas if she'd been taking the pill continuously or had only a much shorter hormone-free interval, those extra three days on top of, let's say, a four-day break that she might have taken already would not have caused any uh, consequence because she's still within that seven-day limit of um, waking the ovaries up. Uh, so I suppose there's a lot in there about the, you know, the difference between perfect use and typical use mm. in terms of the explanation from the GP. You know, uh, have I explained it clearly? Has, mm. has, has the woman really, um, um, yeah, have I explained it well enough for that, for that person to, re- to really follow? Mm. Is, that, is that an issue? Or? Yes, it is an issue because, because women, because there is this monthly bleed, which is which we often mistakenly use the word period, (laughs) Mm. Um, there is this perception among women that they see the pill cycle in the same way that they see their own natural cycle. Mm. So often when you chat with a woman, her perception is that the risky time to miss pills is in the middle of a pack because that in her natural cycle is when most women know that they are most at risk of becoming Mm. pregnant, whereas actually that's the safest time for them to miss pills. They could, in theory, miss up to seven without it being um, a significant Mm. consequence, provided they've already taken seven and are taking another seven. Um, What they, they often don't understand is the riskiest time of missing pills is restarting a new pack because they think they're safe because they're on their period. Um, And if we don't explain to them that this is a completely arbitrary withdrawal bleed, it is just a consequence of stopping those hormones. And if they don't restart their pill pack, that is the most dangerous time to to risk pregnancy. So 
sex is only safe within the hormone-free interval, provided they restart their next pill pack on time. And I think that's a very simple message um, that we need to get across to women. Mm. Yeah, that's very useful. Um, just going back to some of the other um, the, the other evidence about, I think one thing that in my mind, which I could be completely wrong about, but you think, well, if you're taking it for longer periods of time without mm. a break, are there any extra risks to that? We know that women taking the combined pill continuously, their concerns are, is the lining of the womb building up? Yeah. Um, so the first thing we can say to them is there's nothing building up. There's nothing to be shed as a lining of the womb. When you start taking the hormones, it's just the walls of, of the womb that are responding to those hormones and causing a bleed. And if you note, if you just look at the summary of product characteristics, for example, um, or even the patient information leaflet, how many times have you actually seen it written that the pill protects you against ovarian and endometrial cancer? So it's actually halving the risk of those quite scary cancers. And while there may be a small increased risk of of, um, developing breast cancer, then that risk equates to about one extra case per, I think it's something like um, 7,636 women per year of pill users. So if you, if you put that into that context and you look at all the benefits that a, a woman might be experiencing. Um, there's how, would, how would you explain the, sorry to interrupt you, but the, yeah. the, that breakthrough bleeding or um, how, how, was, how would one explain that then? Yeah, so that is that is due more often than not to how how our body is responding to those hormones. So sometimes if the balance of those hormones isn't quite right, it just causes the blood vessels that line the um, the womb to cause some bleeding. And when you explain to a woman that quite often when they take a pill, every single day that they take a pill, they will absorb a slightly different amount. So for women who get um, more regular breakthrough bleeding or unscheduled bleeding, there is less balance between the bleeding threshold, the level of the hormones, um, compared to um, other women who don't get any unscheduled bleeding at all. Is it worth just mentioning yeah. how many of them become amenorrheic? Uh, yeah. So I think I think when, when we're counselling women about um, potential bleeding side effects when they're taking the pill, the first thing to say is within the first three months, anything might happen and for them not to be concerned about it. And that's whether they're taking it 21-7 or whether they're taking it co- continuously. Beyond that, um, we know that women who are using the combined pill continuously without a break, we'd expect probably about 60 to 70% of them to achieve complete amenorrhea by the time they've been taking it for for about a year. Mm. Um, I think it's also, it's always worth saying to women that the bleeding is a nuisance side effect for uh, them, but doesn't usually represent anything of medical concern. Um, The exception being obviously sexually transmitted infections that that need to be tested for. Um, But with pill-relating bleeding, because everything is quiet, the ovaries are quiet, the reproductive organs are quiet, you're actually usually suppressing any potential potential medical disorders um, rather than causing them.
so there's loads loads of really useful stuff there, wasn't there? Um, anything in particular you want to pick up on? There are a few. Yeah, there, I took away quite a few um, little nuggets of information from that. I mean, the thing about I'd never really thought about the importance of emphasising the need to restart your next pack, um, particularly if you're sexually active in the break. Um, so that's definitely something I will mention in consultations. And also this um, explaining um, the kind of theory behind the breakthrough bleeding um, and how to kind of describe that to patients as well. So that's, yeah, definitely things that I can take away. Yeah, it's the explanations which, um, yeah, you, if you can't if you can't spin a good, you know, it's not a story, but if you can't you make just good need explanations that good phrasing, somebody, don't you? Then, yeah, that you can just, yeah, it's just yeah. kind of quite short, quite clear. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's a difference between oh that that GP's knows some stuff and oh, I'm <laughs> I not going back so to see. I got so confused when I left. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Jenny, any, anything there that I also find I also find her ex- found her explanation of um, you know when is the quote unquote safest time to miss a pill with respect to un ex- uh, unplanned pregnancy. I just found that super fascinating. I'd never really thought about it that way before. You know, that, I mean, of course it is an artificial bleed and that's the rationale behind shorter pill-free intervals. Um, but yeah, that, that um, I think I will definitely take that forward into my practice. And I also um, hadn't really realized that so many women became amenorrheic on combined oral contraceptives. Of course, that's super common with the progesterone IUD in roughly the same percentage of women. Um, But I hadn't thought about that for combined pills. That's fascinating. It's interesting how that's one of the advantages for some women. And for other women, it's one of the kind of things that they don't like about it. And I think this comes back to what um, Anne was saying about um, the bleed being perceived as a kind of period or as a kind of confirmation that you're you're not pregnant, and that's def- definitely something I've tried to kind of consciously move away from is calling that bleed, you know, not calling it a period, and trying to explain what it is. But I think you're absolutely right, Navjoy, and it really just depends on what is important to the individual person mm-hmm. who's deciding on contraception. You know, absolutely wanting that signal every month that they're not pregnant, that their birth control is working, is really important for some people. Um, On the other hand, having to deal with menstrual bleeding can be really annoying. Um, It just really depends on your lifestyle and what you believe and um, your kind of approach and understanding of your body as well. Mm -hmm. So Tom, do you feel um, clearer about um, the the, the regimens now? Yeah, definitely. I think it, it does take time, I think, to, to get these new, to me, a new concept, new idea. I, I think I wouldn't, my fear is getting it wrong and then, you know, feeling responsible for, for, for that. But um, I definitely feel after after speaking to, to Anne that I can do that. <laughs> I can definitely get that. Do both of you know one. where the, um, yeah. the, the, the sort of standard regime of 21 days on and seven days off, where that comes from? Well, I've heard that it, well, I've even said to a couple of, patients actually that this is just made up by by some men who who thought that this was the best thing for women is, is, is well, that right in or? a way i think um it was not related <laughs> to the catholic church it is yeah so uh, oh. when when the pill was first being kind of developed and brought to market um the, so the story goes that uh the 
I don't know, the developers. I don't. I wish I knew the name of who who was behind it. It seems like something I should know. But anyway, um, they, in order to try and get the Catholic Church on board with it, they thought, well, if we design it in this way that is mimicking what happens normally, you know, and that you know, you you have you take it for a month, you have a bleed every month, um, then that might that might get the Catholic Church on board and and make them willing to kind of accept it and and you know, so that people who are Catholic could take it. Um, but the uh, Catholic Church weren't on board, but they still went with this as the regime. <laughs> so it just seemed, you just realise actually how kind of arbitrary it is. You know, it's, it, there's no, there's no kind of medical or scientific rationale for that, that, for that as a regime. And often I will say that to patients that, you know, you, you, you can do it in, in a way that works for you. Don't feel that you have to do you know, that this is the, the best way. Yeah, I, I talk to my patients about that as well, that there's no kind of physiologic reason why they need to have a bleed or a withdrawal bleed every month, that in fact, that's not what's necessary. And and I think Anne was really great about um, touching on that as well, making the point that nothing builds up. I think a lot of women have a fear that there is this insane quantity of uterine lining building up inside their body. Um, you know, people have theorized that that's, you know, part of the pathogenesis of endometriosis and, you know, all of this, all of this stuff. But, um, you know, a- as she mentioned, the evidence doesn't, doesn't support that. So shall we hear a, bit, a little bit more from Anne, um, because she explains things so well. Um, I asked her about another challenging thing, which is, which pill do you offer? What's your first line pill? And um, and then if someone's not, you know struggling with, with that pill, it doesn't suit them, then how do you rationally sort of offer something which is better? Um, so that's coming up after this from our sponsor. When you're a GP, you're not just nine to five. Being a GP is part of who you are whatever the time of day. So when it comes to your indemnity, you need protection you can turn to whenever you need it. With new challenges always arising, we're here with expert medico-legal advice available 24-7 in an emergency. And because we're discretionary, we've got the flexibility to protect you for a wide range of situations with individual support that's tailored to your needs. During the current crisis, we know GPs need this flexible support more than ever. Visit medicalprotection.org to find out how we are helping our members through this challenging time, including policy changes, extended membership benefits, and medico-legal advice. Let's go back to the second part of my interview. consultation of a woman coming in I will actually often ask her um, have you heard of any pills or are your friends taking any pills that 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 you know of Um, for the simple reason if their friends are taking a particular pill and they're staying on it then you're going to get better um, concordance with pill taking if if it's if it's one that their friends are are already often happy the answer on. is Yasmin, and then we go oh yes <laughs> you know that 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 is a bit of a difficult one but you can segue around that one by actually saying well that's not one that we we routinely offer but we've got some ones that are very similar to that 
And that is when I turned to my Bible, the pill progestogen ladder, which I have found incredibly useful. Um, it was first developed by Professor John Gilbo and published in his book, The Pill, um, many, many moons ago. And gradually we've just developed it over time, turned it into pretty little colours, added all the um, new and old pills in. But essentially, it very simply uh, pictorially describes the different progestogens available in the pill, the different estrogens that are used in the pill, and how those progestogens affect um, the potential side effects that you might expect from the pill. So if we think about a, a, the pill ladder is going you know, from one side to the most progestogenic testosterone or androgenic um, pill side effects, to the ones that are positively more estrogenic with things like drospirinone uh, that, that are in Yasmin, um, in Eloine. Um, you can then quite easily either predict what a person might be likely to experience or certainly when they come back for a pill check. Um, in the days when we had low estrogen, if a woman used to come back after three months and say, well, I actually haven't had a withdrawal bead and I keep doing millions of pregnancy tests, uh, you can predict, oh, were you on low estrogen? Is that the one that you were given? Um, similarly, if a woman has been fine before she started the pill and she comes back after three months and she says, oh, I'm, I feel really low mood, my skin's got really spotty, my libido has completely disappeared then you can pretty well predict that she was probably on microgynon. On the other end, you know, sometimes if they've been taking Yasmin, they might come, come back and saying, uh, well, you know, I've got um, a bit, little bit of breast tenderness. Um, I'm, I've got more vaginal discharge. My breasts have grown much bigger than they used to be, but my hair is absolutely fantastic. My skin is fantastic. Then, you know, you, you can easily see she's on a more estrogen dominant pill than um, the than, than the other. And I guess the thing to do there is, well, if, if, if they wish looking to explore other options is to look for the one next on the pill ladder? Or well, that, that, that's, the... yeah, exactly. It just shifts sideways yeah. um, to, de depending on what they're experiencing. The, the, the estrogenic side effects I really simply think of as um, what, a, what a woman experiences when she's pregnant. So you will shift to a less estrogenic or, or more progestogen dominant pill, if you like. Um, mm. And then with the progestogenic side effects, you can think of things like PMT. So, you know, moodiness, um, greasy spots, so all of those things, then you shift to a more um, estrogenic type pill. Mm. Um, so, I mean, first line, I, 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 I still think there is, there is definitely a place for microgynon, but I think we would... What would be lovely is we, if we had a 20 microgram microgynon pill <laughs> in the okay. UK, because I think the particularly if you're giving the combined pill continuously, then you can get away with using a 20 microgram pill more often than not. Um, but if they have consistent unscheduled bleeding, you might want to think about shifting them up to to a 30 microgram pill. <laughs> So if any pharmaceutical companies are listening, you know, 20 micro, microgram microgynon equivalent. Jenny, you're shaking your head. Why are you shaking your head? 
She just explains things so well. (laughs) I I just, I mean, I thought I kind of knew this stuff. And I'm like, wow, yeah, I never thought about it that way. (laughs) She's really good, eh? Yeah, I agree. Yeah. I might just sort of play her, play that recording to patients over the phone. (laughs) But it makes you realize, Uh, actually, how um, I feel like, you know, the pill pill check, we've just talked about what a routine appointment it is and how we love it when it comes because it's going to be a quick one. And actually, you realize how probably we're doing a disservice to the women because um, there's all this stuff about side effects that I certainly wasn't taught about that, you know, this is an approach to managing um, side effects. These are the more androgenic ones. These are the more estrogenic ones. And, you know, if, if someone is experiencing these things, this is an approach to how you might try something different. And yeah, I mean, I, I think certainly initially my kind of shifting around to, you know, what do you want to try a different pill? It was a bit more kind of haphazard than that. And I just think, you know, oh, just poor patients. There was an article in The Lily, which is a spinoff from The Washington Post. This was from October 2019. Um, and the title of the article, we'll link to it, is called Hormonal Birth Control is a Guessing Game. You're not making up the side effects. And it's all about um, basically these kind of case studies and individual interviews with women um, about how the way that different birth control methods and even different pills result in different side effects for different women and how they're very difficult to predict. And I feel like so much of what Anne said as well explains that given the differential daily absorption of the hormone, but the way that our bodies Mm. process these. I mean, I think it's kind of what you were saying now, Joy, like we just expect that they've been around for so long, taking pills is fine, they're safe, whatever and we expect women to just not have any side effects or not have any major side effects when actually that's not true at all there can be this sense in our heads that oh well if it's not a if it's not a dbt or a pe or you know then it's um it's minor you know a side effect is minor so a bit of weight gain you know a bit of acne that's okay and i think that that again does a real disservice i think to the people taking them where you know, I think there's a real lesson in sort of listening to people's experiences. And if they're unhappy with what they're taking, then try something else. The other big, um, well, the other thing that reminds me of is uh, a few years ago, our CCG asked us to switch all women who were taking branded contraceptives to other brands of, con- cheaper brands of contraception, and um, which we so dutifully did. Um, but so many people would then call back saying, no, this is not the same. You know, I'm not experiencing you know, I'm experiencing different side effects. Uh, and of course, the line from the CC, CCG was, it's, these are exactly the same, no difference. Um, I never really got to the bottom of that. Um, but, you know, it's perfectly possible, I suppose, in the manufacturing process, if, if you know, if they're, if they're within sort of 98% of each other, I don't know. Um, it, it did seem like so many people were calling about that, that um, there must be something in it. Mm. And in, the, in that process, Tom, I'm curious, I mean, did you feel like you were kind of forcing a different medication onto these patients? Did you feel like, did you ever feel bad? Like you were kind of forcing them to <laughs> yeah, do something yeah, they didn't yeah. want to do? And what was that like with respect to yeah. their birth control? Well, 
I think we were advised just to just to switch it and put leave a note with the prescription. You know, we have switched you to a, a different brand of the same thing. I suppose like switching brands of ketchup or something. Um, but I guess the thing about switching ketchup brands, you know, that nothing tastes quite as good as Heinz, you know. <laughs> Uh, but you know, we were given all sorts of um, very, very detailed information to reassure our patients that that this is the same. Tom, you love a. I was going to say you love a good analogy. I'll just say you love an analogy. But <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, well. I don't know what to say. That's sorry. Me. I'm sorry. Yeah. Like really... us on iTunes. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, let's move on. I, I've, 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 that, that, yeah, I think we need to move on. Um, so we're going to move on to uh, from the pill check, I suppose, to to, to look more broadly at reproductive choices. Um, and this, I'll, I'll hand over to you, Jenny. So we're talking a bit here about you know, some of the assumptions that we make in in our contraceptive counseling, um, ranging from side effects to um, the different methods that women might want for whatever reason. Um, I had a conversation with Tara Stein. She is associated with Montefiore Medical Center and works right now preparing clinical curricula for family medicine residents in the area of reproductive health. And I asked her about some of the assumptions that we make that we bring into uh, contraceptive counseling visits with our patients, and even how we can approach visits where um, women themselves might have some uh, ambiguity or lack of certainty about what they want, or perhaps when they approach birth control from a different perspective than um, medical doctors. My name is Tara Stein. I am a family physician by training, and I currently work for Ready, the Reproductive Health Education and Family Medicine, where I am a clinical curriculum manager. So a lot of times when I was seeing patients in the Bronx, um, I would, particularly when seeing adolescents, um, ask them if they wanted to talk about contraception, ask, you know, beyond taking a sexual history. And um, so often what they would tell me, and they, they know very clearly they don't want to be pregnant, right? They, they understand that that's not what they want. That's not a good thing for them at the time. But then when I would say, okay, well, what can we do for contraception? What would you like? What sounds interesting? I can talk with you about all these options. And they would say, no. And that's and for me personally at the time, it was like, wait a minute, these two ideas seem to not be, you know, uh, possible at the same time. Like, how can you know that you don't want to be pregnant, but also not want contraception? And um, I wonder if you can speak a little bit to that and how we as providers in that scenario can empower those patients. Yeah, absolutely. I think this is um, this is really a, a great question and something that has become something of a focus in the family planning community um, around the language of pregnancy intention. Um, the idea that everyone should be very clear or certain about when and how they become pregnant and when and how they parent. But in fact, almost everyone has conflicting feelings at different times in different spaces with different partners in different life circumstances. You have a job, you lose a job, you get into school, uh, you have a male, 
you know, all of those things are constantly shifting in our lives. And so it would make sense that we're always questioning and re-questioning need. You know, I think part of our urgency in wanting a patient to be certain, to say, I don't want to be pregnant. And so I should be on a method stems from our medical training. We're trained to prescribe specific paths of action. If you become pregnant, you should avoid risky behaviors. You should abstain from alcohol. You should have a healthy diet, exercise, take vitamins and so on. Um, you know, and if you don't want to be pregnant, then you need a method so that you don't have this, what we predict or assume to be an unsafe or an unhealthy pregnancy, right? The pregnancy that isn't planned is somehow going to turn out poorly. But the evidence doesn't hold up to that. Even though we know that there are things we can do to improve outcomes by providing prenatal vitamins, for example, we also know that plenty of people have pregnancies where they didn't follow every rule and have very healthy children. And we know that there are people who follow every rule and still have poor outcomes. And the poor outcomes are tied much more closely to the systemic racism that infiltrates the healthcare system and our environment than it really does to the patient's management of individual choices. Not to belabor the point, but um, I remember during my training, um, a learning session um, with you and other colleagues about you know, uh, medica medication abortion and um, how part of our kind of routine visits, and we, we tried to minimize the number of visits for patients, again, trying to increase their access to our services, but I remember part of those routine visits being to talk about contraception. And I remember a question came up during one of those sessions, um, admittedly from a white male doctor, I just have to say that, um, who, and he said, um, well, wait a minute, what, what contraception are you going to give this person who just had an abortion? Um, and we had a discussion about how actually if the woman says no, even though she's just had an abortion, like that is okay. And I think a lot of people, a lot of physicians still have a problem with this idea that you've just performed an abortion and you're not going to set somebody up with contraception same day, same visit, or even next visit if they say no, they don't want contraception. Um, and I wonder if you can talk a little bit about that specific scenario of women um, thinking about contraception immediately after having yeah, an abortion. I, um, I'm glad that you, I'm glad that that session stayed with you and that resonated with you because I think those are, those are the most important lessons that we can take from, from residency is that ability to exchange ideas and, and confront each other and to to question and to challenge ourselves. So that, that delights me that that stuck around. Um, and yeah, you know, there's been, there's been a lot of literature around the timing of asking patients about contraception, particularly in relation to having their abortion care provided to them. And for a lot of patients, that's not the time or space that they want to talk about that, you know, and we can, you know, go into a lot of different ideas or um, assumptions about why that might be. But really, a medical procedure or a medical visit is about that visit. You know, if you go to the hospital because you need to have um, a cardiac test done and someone says to you, well, we need to start you on some other medicine, 
you're like, no, I'm still thinking about what this procedure means to me and how I'm going to feel and what's going to happen and what does this look like? And I kind of want to go home and process this and recover for a few days and, um, and not be starting my nicotine patch or not be starting my Lipitor, you know, because what, what I really want to do is I want to kind of heal. And so for a patient who's had an abortion, that patient wants to go home and perhaps talk to their family or talk to their friends or talk to no one. And, you know, be in a space where they can say this happened and how do I feel? And am I any different? And maybe I'm not any different and that's great. Or maybe I am and I've reconsidered something. And so to sort of impose a second decision on top in that same, in that intersection of space uh, may not be right. And it, it goes back to the previous question of why do we feel the urgency of like providing as many services into one visit? And it, it ties into how we provide healthcare and limited access and um, so I think that's a part of it. Um, I also think there's a lot of assumptions about why patients have abortions. Patients who have abortions want to be parents. Patients who have abortions don't want to be parents. Patients who have abortions don't want children. Patients who have abortions already have many children. Um, patients may be choosing to have an abortion because of a medical complication that they needed to get under control, but they really want to become pregnant again right away. Um, they might've had a complication with the pregnancy itself. They might've had a complication with their partner, their partner status. Um, you know, so making an assumption that a patient who comes for an abortion just doesn't want to have a pregnancy right now is a, a pretty profound assumption. I'm an IUD provider. And traditionally we think of an IUD as um, one of the methods that gives patients relatively less autonomy because you have to go into the office in order to get it inserted. And if you want it removed, you have to go into the office again. And I'm curious if you can say a few final words on how to approach students in that scenario, how to be aware of the power differences that exist between students and the provider and other strategies to kind of mitigate that power differential or at least accommodate for it? Yeah, I, I think regardless of the age of the patient, um, the most important thing, like a takeaway for primary care doctors or providers who do these services everywhere is if you're going to offer the insertion, you have to offer the removal with the same expedited sense of um, no judgment, no question for both services. Um, and this is something that people really struggled with, that the effort, they saw the effort that went into starting a new service. They saw the cost burden of buying supplies or instruments or setting aside time for training. And the devices themselves are very expensive, um, particularly in the United States market and other markets where insurance covers all contraceptives. But for, for the United States market, some patients have to pay out of pocket and insurance has covered different methods. And so the IUD is an expensive one. Um, and so to give the patient the sense that I am pleased to insert this IUD for you because it's safe and effective. And we know that it's a method that you can use and does not cause an impact on your future ability to have pregnancies or children at the time that is right for you, right? Which are all myths that we had to fight against in the medical institution. We're pushing so hard to make people feel comfortable getting this method and providers comfortable offering this method that we also had to reiterate 
you're allowed to have this method removed at any time for any reason, for no reason. And I'm not going to put up barriers either to your insertion or to your removal because this is your body. It is a concern when you look at the long history of reproductive coercion and for sterilization, particularly on women's bodies, women of color, nationally and internationally, our communities are resonating a truth, which is that, hey, are you trying to do something to me that I have no control over? And that is something we have to honor and center in our conversations and say, yes, this history is real, that communities have experienced and continue to experience this kind of reproductive coercion. We don't want this to be the same thing. We want this to be about empowering you. So here's the IUD device if you want it, and here's how you get it out as soon as you don't want it. These have to be wed together. This has to be taught in the same breath that um, access is about making sure patients can start and stop methods and choose to initiate and choose to not have a method altogether. Um, and that's all part of, that's all part of access. So a couple of things struck me from that interview. One is that term unplanned pregnancy and yeah, I think I admit that that I've seen that in the notes. I've probably written it in the notes, and and it, it's just a laden term, isn't it? It's a shorthand for something, um, which is very judgmental. Um, and secondly, that uh, again, um, I keep dissing my local services, which isn't fair. But uh, uh, you know, there's always been a problem in, in our area that you have to book to have your IUD removed in, in our local sexual health clinics, but very often all the all the appointments are gone. <laughs> so. You know, you, you, if you don't sort of get your appointment when they get released, then um, you're left with a, an IUD you don't want for goodness knows how long. Um, so it's, uh, yeah, it's not, that's not good, is it? <laughs> no, and I'm really glad that Tara spoke to that last point about offering and counseling on removal at the same time that you're counseling on insertion. Um, I remember when I was, you know, trying to do as many IUDs as possible in order to get qualified to to do that procedure, feeling heartbroken when someone came back and said, I don't want this. Like, no, I worked so hard. You know, like this was going to be great for you. But actually, that's a completely inappropriate reaction because it's not about me. It's not about us. It's about what their experience is on that individual contraceptive method. And I guess that's part of, um, you know, making uh, these methods of kind of more long-acting contraception more routine is if we approach them as if they're, they're routine, you know, it's not a big deal to insert them and it's not a big deal to remove them. And then maybe people will think of them as, you know, a more, a more convenient option. I just wanted to... Um bring up one little quote uh, so no judgment no question was one little phrase which which was sounded nice um i just wonder about the question bit because um I, I i guess you still want to have a conversation you know talk me through you know what what why have you decided to do this because um you know without being coercive and trying to set aside your own um you know how you feel about it uh isn't that still important or do we just say okay it's an interesting I take it out. point and I know 
you know, when people have come in um, after having an IUD insertion and have questions about some of the things they're experiencing, you know, one of the things that I have done in the past to say, oh, well, you know, if you're ever unsure, we can always do an ultrasound to reassure you and make sure that we can see exactly where the IUD is located. And if I'm being completely honest, I think a part of that was, please don't make me remove your IUD. Like, not because I felt that person needed to keep it in at all costs, but more because, you know, it's a good method and a lot, you know. Yeah. And um, I think the, the point here, though, and I'm reflecting on this myself as we're talking is that when you ask questions like that or you know when you're when you pose questions to the patient when they come in saying that they want something then you're innately adding doubt and kind of uncertainty and almost like you in this position of authority um are questioning their judgment yeah but that i guess my worry is is that where it's heading that because there is this power imbalance that um are we does that mean we're unable to to have these conversations? Yeah, can we not can we not trust ourselves to put some put that aside and I think it depends on what you're talking about. So um I think I don't know, I've increasingly I think the the topic of contraception I is one that my own kind of attitudes towards as a doctor have changed quite a lot where you know, it feel I feel like the system at least in the UK is set up where you know, doctors are the kind of gatekeepers to many contraceptive choices. And, you know, and there are reasons, you know, we want to be able to talk about what's appropriate for for certain people and, you know, what's safe. Um, And I think as time has gone on, I've sort of realised that actually that I I feel like sometimes the the medical side of things oversteps, you know, and, and I think something like removing an IUD that I don't think that needs to be a kind of laboured conversation with me sort of saying, well, are you sure? No, you know, this is how you need to be booked into this clinic and it's going to take two weeks and this is how it's going to happen. Actually, if if a woman wants to remove, wants to remove her IUD, then that should just be a relatively straightforward matter of her choice. So do we even need a doctor or a nurse to to remove an IUD? Is, is Is that even actually necessary? Well, interestingly, there is a small but growing body of research and literature about this topic. Um, And specifically, there have been a couple qualitative papers and other small studies. This was done in like mid-2018, 2019. Um, And I'm thinking of one study in particular um, that was published in Contraception. And this was a small study including 15 patients and 12 physicians Um, And all um, patients were interested in IUD self-removal. The the physician's concern, interestingly, in this paper was predominantly that um, they would be doing hasty removals. So I think that raises some interesting questions. If this is a possibility that's acceptable to patients, um, you know, presumably that should be okay for providers. Um, yeah. But it, but maybe there's this possibility that providers don't want to relinquish control. Yeah. So, so you, do, do you remove um, IEDs? Because I, 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 
I'm not a coil fitter or remover. Um, is it is it very straightforward? Is there is there any risk? I do remove IUDs, and um, for the in the vast majority of cases, it's very straightforward. Um, you mm. take a, a loop forceps, a ring forceps. You 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 pull. It's very easy, very quick. Um, the most common complications are that the coil is embedded in the uterine tissue, so there can be some pain and discomfort, a little bit of bleeding for the patient. And um, the other problem is if the strings aren't visible in the cervix, if the IUD has migrated um, migrated up in the uterus. Um, but it's a really safe, straightforward procedure. And in order to enable patients to remove IUDs themselves, the IUD strings are simply cut a little bit longer at insertion. Yeah. But I can imagine that the idea to the mainstream medical profession is... You know, goodness, we, we couldn't allow that, or that wouldn't be safe. But maybe a lot of that is about, you know, protectionism or, or like not wanting to cede control. Right. Well, and in times like coronavirus, where we've been trying mm. to limit face-to-face visits, I think this has come up a lot as well. You know, if there's a way to limit people's unnecessary in-person visit to a health clinic, shouldn't we be in favor of that? It's so interesting what you're saying, Tom, about, um, you know, the reasons why we might not, um, why we might be resistant to change and whether that's kind of protectionism or power or whatever it is. And it may, that may be in part part of it, but I think also a lot of the time it's, um, some, for me anyway, you know, maybe a lack of knowledge or uncertainty, that means that kind of shifting from the status quo feels kind of scary, even if, you know, it might be more mm, convenient mm. for the patient. So I suppose until mm. there's a change in, in guidance, you know, which which sort of uh, gives gives us a bit more protection, I suppose, it's very difficult. Yeah, exactly. Then you have the confidence to sort of say, mm. okay, well, this is what's recommended and I'm not mm. kind of sticking my neck out on the line. I, I will just say that I think... Part of this goes back to something um, Tara said, which is that, you know, so much of our instinctive reactions to whether a person should get contraception, whether they need it, how important it is that we give it to them really stems from our medical training. You know, like first do no harm, but, you know, the way that medical education has been structured is around preventing unplanned pregnancy is around you know reducing those negative outcomes with you know adolescent pregnancies and all of that is on the one hand appropriate but maybe not always patient centered and and I do think there's a lot to be said for the way that the medical education system approaches um, women's sexual and reproductive health, which means that we're more focused on kind of making sure that we quote unquote do the right thing and not necessarily doing the thing the patient mm. wants. So, so um, true. it's complex, isn't it? I, I think we've done a great job in this episode of taking what we thought was the most simple consultation <laughs> and, you know, finding lots of different le- le- levels and layers to it and um, <laughs> making it more difficult, but, but no, in a good way. I, <laughs> we haven't even spoken about kind of gender, gender equality and all of mm. that that's wrapped up in a consultation as well. And, you know, that that's a whole other layer as well, 
which I, I guess at this point is it's too much to go into, but you know, it just shows how there there is so much going on in that consultation, I think. And maybe that's another episode, but I think we've run out of time for this one and uh so we'll leave it there. Uh, so thanks to Anne and Tara. Uh, thank you, Jenny and Avjoy. See you next time. Thanks, Tom. See you next time. Thanks, Tom. I hope you enjoyed the, the episode. Uh, if you did, or uh, or maybe even if you didn't so much, but please subscribe anyway to the <laughs> Deep Breath In channel. Uh, like us. So you can <laughs> like Leave us, yeah. <laughs> I wasn't going to be quite so desperate this episode, but um, please do subscribe. So now it's time for our deep breath out, which is the part of the episode where we um, share things which uh, are our sort of housekeeping tools, the things that keep us um, relaxed or de-stressed at the end of the day. Um, we're hoping to get some some of your suggestions, so please email us at practice at bmj.com. We're going to hear today me doing origami, because that's the thing that I've taken up in the last few months as um, something to get me away from reading about coronavirus and working on coronavirus and uh, and of course the, the, the clinical job as well. So I'm going to make a, an origami butterfly. I'm going to try to do it really quickly. I'm going to try to do it very loudly so you can actually hear. 